This is CNN. Radio. This is CNN Profiles. I'm your host, Michael Shoulder. Uh, the Boston bombing, we would say the signature injury in the Boston bombing is certainly loss of limb. We've heard a lot of those stories. And because of that, we're turning to our guest today. And by the way, our guest is going to be very uplifting. I know this. So please stay with us. His name is Dr. Jeff Kane. He is a double amputee. He is also chief of family medicine at Children's Hospital in Denver. Dr. Kane, can I call you Jeff? Welcome. Please do. Hello, Michael. How are you? Oh, I'm living the dream today, Michael. <laughs> living the well. That's that's a great place to start. And and you you had been living the dream for a long time. So I want you to do me a favor and take me back to the year before the accident happened. What was your life like, and then what happened? Just tell us your story. Thanks, Michael. Um, I'm a, a fortunate guy that's been able to live some wonderful adventures. Um, I, uh, adventures with skiing. My father was a 26-year-old uh, veteran ski patrolman, uh, a person that had done a lot of long-distance cycling, a uh, person that had been able to uh, work and uh, do some exciting things in the world with helping kids and to not smoke as a family doctor, a teacher, a practicer. Uh, I like to tell people a family doctor is a great job. Um, my my youngest patient hadn't been born yet. My oldest patient is 94 and uh, still goes out to corral horses in her corral. Uh, so an active, thriving, vibrant life. Uh, before and, and also, um, ultimately, I hope that people that were injured and people can listening can understand uh, thriving life afterwards, too. So this thriving life, by the way, take us to the year. You're talking about when and how old were you? Sure. I was, uh, I was uh, 36 at the time, 1996. I'll tell you a story that a week before the accident, I remember riding uh, my bike up this hill and, and actually in the sunshine thinking how fortunate I was to have this marvelous body that allows us to be active and experience the world as a cyclist, as an athlete. Um, and then a week later, uh, waking up in an ICU. Before we get into your accident, just tell us a little bit more about the kind of adventurism that you participated in. It sounds like you were following your, in your father's footsteps in many ways, that he was a role model. Uh, did you do it competitively? wasn't a competitive skier, Michael, but when you uh, have a chance, I got a chance to move from Oregon, where I grew up, uh, to Colorado to do my training in family medicine. And I discovered this marvelous thing out in Colorado. It's, it's yellow. It's in the sky. And heat and light comes out of it. It's called the sun. <laughs> and in addition to that, I got to discover really big mountains. And I was never a competitive skier, but someone that really enjoyed that the sensation of sweeping and carving turns on a ski or a snowboard a, a water ski to be able to to breathe the mountains the ability to interact to use your body in a way that brought joy um, so I, I was really fortunate as a, a high level skier that could ski any mountain um, and enjoy that experience with my friends with my family with my dad um, it was great and the accident, though, had nothing to do with skiing. So now, now take us to the accident. Ah, uh, one of those things that happens when you uh, sometimes you follow your passion. I, 
Uh, ever since I was a little kid, I wanted to fly. Um, I grew up looking up at the sky, building model airplanes, um, building kites for a while in my life, and had the real joy and experience to become a pilot um, in the early 90s. I was flying uh, my dream. I, I lived under the influence of an author named Richard Bach. You might know the book Jonathan Livingston's Seagull or Illusions that talk about how we really get to be the best human beings we are when we do what we love. And I loved biking and skiing, and, and I found that I really loved flying. I got a chance to own a, an open cockpit biplane, a, an airplane that was uh, uh, seats two, and I had had uh, 500 kids in that airplane, one at a time, um, to be able to introduce them to the sky. And when you see a kid that's, that's nervous and scared step into that front cockpit and, and then look down, flying's metaphorical, it's also literal elevation, but you look down and the, the buildings are smaller and the cars are smaller, and in some ways, the troubles of the world are smaller as you look down just from a 1,000 feet. Uh, it's a little like dancing, I, dancing but with three dimensions. And so it was one of my, my new loves at the time I had my accident. And what was the accident? Um, it, was a, it was an accident. It was an airplane accident, Michael, on my birthday. Um, on my birthday in 1996, a friend offered a gift uh, a chance to fly an open cockpit airplane uh, during the golden hour. You know that that hour when the sun sun shines, the sun sets, and you can see the the light change. And um, uh, I got to take off right at, right before sunset and uh, look down at a fly-in or a festival of flying that was celebration. Um, but sometimes, you know, those beautiful times can also be dangerous um, when you're in enjoying that thrill of life. Um, I, uh, I turned towards final an airplane I didn't know as well with less wing, less horsepower in a tricky wind condition and found the airplane dropping out um, underneath me. Your, uh, your pilot instincts kick right in. Throttle in, nose up, but it was too late. And as a loud, loud bang, quiet, and you're alone. Um, the quietness. Uh, then your first thoughts: Oh crap! Uh, I, I broke Claude's airplane. Uh, but but the truth was, um, I was immediately in mortal danger there, and um, my friends were on the field um, with me um, as the sun was going down, and I could talk with them and be there with them. As uh, you know, your your doctor instincts kick right in. It's a ABC, and they teach in med school: airway, breathing, circulation. I knew I was in trouble. They asked, you know, should we call an ambulance? No, no, I need a helicopter. Uh, my face was damaged. Um, I could tell my face was mobile. My legs were damaged. They had gone through the wooden floorboards of the airplane. And I knew um, that without help that I would, would, would bleed to death. Um, and you're here to tell the story. Your life was saved. And tell us when, at, at what point was the decision made because I was reading in Boston that they had it's such a tough decision to for a doctor to make either take the leg or save it and yeah. in Boston I understand and at least in one of the hospitals they would have two surgeons in the room signing off on the amputation decision what happened with you when I uh, 
my life was saved by a helicopter. Um, the helicopter was able to bring me um, during the golden hour. We talked about the golden hour of daylight. There's also a golden hour that was in Boston, a golden hour that happens in Iraq and Afghanistan today with armed forces, and the golden hour that saved my life of getting me into that ICU. Um, they poured blood. They did stabilization. And I spent two weeks in a, my own ICU that I on a ventilator. And the decision was made to amputate one leg um, while I was in a partial wakefulness state uh, by my family, um, by my doctors, um, by me in a sort of a drug-induced haze of being able to help me survive. When you say your own ICU, this is the ICU in which you practiced as a physician. The week before, I had been rounding in my own ICU, and, uh, and I woke up in my own ICU. Um, and and so, they took and they and they took one leg, and and then what happened? They tried to save the other leg. Um, I spent six years and a number of surgeries trying to uh, save the other leg that was also severely injured. Um, it's ironic. Uh, it took me about two years to realize that I had uh, a good leg. I had a I had a prosthesis, and I had a, a damaged leg, and the good leg was the prosthesis. And after six years, um, I decided to have that leg uh, amputated later on um, because that was what was limiting me. Um, it was news to most people that uh, they, were, they were sorry when they heard that story. And they said, you didn't understand that, that taking, choosing to have the second leg amputated actually made me more active. Uh, as my surgeon said, you have a choice between function or fashion. And um, I would rather have function in the world than than a, a not useful leg. It's an incredible thought that, that an individual, that you can choose to remove a leg, being confident that that would increase the quality of your life. It's, it's incredible to hear that. Well, it's, um, today's, we're fortunate to live in a world where today's prosthetics have uh, functioned beyond uh, the dreams of people a decade ago or two decades ago. Um, and I know that uh, at least a dozen people in... Um, in Boston are faced with not being able to choose, and there may be some limb salvage done, and some of those folks may walk a similar path where we will try to save a leg, and if it's functional, that's fantastic for the surgeons from today, but there will also be other people that will have to face the delayed choice to have a leg amputated. You said something when you were up in the air flying, dreaming of flying, and doing it, it was like dancing, and our senior producer, Chip Grabo has, has a little clip from Anderson Cooper earlier this week. He spoke to a young woman whose name is Adrienne Haslett Davis, 32 years old. She was in the crowd very close oh my. to the bomb when it went off, and she is a, dan a dancer, and dancing mm -hmm. is her life, and listen to her story. When did you realize you didn't have a family? I was... Uh... I woke up and my parents were there and I, I hugged them and kissed them and, and I said, Mom, can you help me? I'm, I feel like my foot's falling asleep because it feels like my ankle is, is falling off of the pillow and my foot is half on. And I realized that now that was phantom pain because she looked at me and said, Adrian, you don't have a foot. Your foot is gone. And I just lost it. It was it's really hard to hear. You're determined to, to dance again, though. I am, yeah. Dancing is really important to you. It is so important to me. It's, it's my life. And she goes on, and if you listen to that whole interview, and we'll, we'll try to stream it somewhere online, because 
I mean, her determin- determination is very strong. She is very confident that she will dance again, that she will teach dancing again. In fact, she offered Anderson Cooper dancing lessons. Did you bounce back in terms of your attitude that quickly? Michael, when I woke up in the ICU, um, I felt so fortunate to be alive. Um, I had family there. I had friends there. Um, they were playing my favorite music. The sunlight was coming, and they'd hung up. Remember Richard Bach? We, we quoted earlier. They hung up one of my favorite quotes from Richard Bach that says, uh, here's a test to see if your work in this earth is finished. If you're here, it's not. And so I woke up dreaming about skiing and asking questions about being active. And while I was in the ICU, my best friend had gone online and took pictures and found pictures of people that were living passionate excited lies wearing prosthetics and so um, I had grown up with Warren Miller uh, the, the ski junkie that gives all those wonderful ski movies and Warren gave a gift that many people don't recognize at the time he includes adaptive athletes in his regular movies you'll see wonderful people skiing shoots and steeps and you'll see people that are using adaptive equipment in his movies so I already had that in my brain I knew, I I didn't know what I could do, but I knew that I could be active again. I promised our listeners this would be an uplifting story, and this is really where it does get uplifting. So you were hopeful at the time, and now we've actually, we're posting a a sequence of photos of you in various activities, and, you know, we can go through them one at a time, but you, clearly, it feels like there are just no limits to what you can do. Adrian's going to dance. <laughs> um, Adrian, Adrian's going to dance. Adrian's going to dance. It's, life is about doing what you're passionate about. That's from Richard Bach. That's also true in life for all of us. Sure, with a prosthetic, you might have to figure out a different way to do it. I, I was, it's funny because part of the lesson is that it's not other people that determines what you can do. It's partly how you figure out to be in the world. Um, And there are many people that told me that I I couldn't do some things, but I had enough idiot friends (laughs) that said, come on, let's try. Uh, I was told I would never ski or snowboard standing up again, but um, I was able to find enough mentors, uh, enough folks to be able to try it, to set those kind of goals, to find out what would happen before. Being a long-distance cyclist and athlete, like these people in Boston, I could never imagine living as a, as a long-distance marathon runner, but learning to run means learning to be able to do those distances, to go beyond what most people think is possible. That's cr- creating a new reality for you, and for me, it, it meant learning to be able to set my own new limits with prosthetics, with my job as a family doctor, to be able to find out what I could do based on, you know, <laughs> yeah, it's different. You know, there's 10,000 things in the world that anybody can do in the world that has an able body, and I can only do 9,500 of them. (laughs) You know where I'm going to live my life, Michael. (laughs) 9,500. Yes. (laughs) Uh, Well, so listen, so here I am now. A lot of people might be listening to this uh, with their earbuds in, uh, taking a walk, uh, which, and by the way, this, I, I think this whole podcast will shed new light on just the simple act of taking a walk, but I'm looking at pictures of you. Walk us through this. I'm, I'm seeing you on a surfboard in the ocean. Tell me about that. <laughs> ah, 
vacation with my family in Hawaii. And uh, um, what do you want to do? You want to have an adventure? Let's try something none of us had had done ever before. And uh, my dad, my brother-in-law, my girlfriend, um, sitting out there catching a wave. And uh, it meant um, waiting. It meant standing up on that board. It meant falling. Uh, uh, it meant that joy of, of finally catching that wave and riding it to the shore. Um, we didn't we didn't bother asking whether it's doable or not. <laughs> we just tried. <laughs> uh, now, uh, next picture in our photo gallery, which people can see online at uh, cnn.com slash soundwaves under the profiles uh, section. Uh, I see you uh, going down a mountain in the snow on something that looks like a bike. Tell me about that. Sure. Michael, as I uh, was in, initially instructed to, I, as I said earlier, I learned to ski and snowboard standing up on two skis. But um, here's a secret your your listeners can't uh, can't see. I, I'm not 26 anymore. Um, it turns out that that there is a challenge with uh, using prosthetics. It's a, you you drive weight through your limbs in a different way. You know, I'm 53 right now, and um, and it's not about, I had to learn, it's not necessarily just about the device. It's about that experience. It's carving turns. It's being with your dad and your friends. What's it take to, to grab that experience? And as it got, I got older and it got harder to do that, I, I could only go a half a day or only run gates on blue runs. <laughs> I wanted to spend the whole day on the mountain. And so I learned to do something that's called the ski bike. Think of a bicycle. You take the wheels off and put skis on there. It stills, stills allows you to do that carve, that independent upper, lower body movement, sweeping turns, steeps, powder. Um, and that was the ski bike. And that was a, something that hadn't been used for adaptive athletes, but it was marvelous. It unweighted my prosthetics and allowed me to do six months after the second amputation, 25,000 feet and all the back bowls at Vail with my dad. It was a great day. Um, that was the ski bike. Wow. How how old is your dad now? Uh, my dad's now uh, 76 years old. And and one of the fun parts about, you know, I've spent a lifetime as a family doctor and teaching. And, you know, I grew a program to help kids not smoke nationally. And what happens if you use those same skills? It, it turns out it's not just me that that ski bike would work for. Um, but I wrote some articles with the Adaptive Ski Program who could see that possibility. And we started teaching instructors about how to use that adaptive device called the ski bike. We had a guy that uh, has no quadriceps, spinal muscular atrophy. He couldn't walk upstairs because the muscles on the top of his legs don't work. He could stand for five minutes, walk a block. His third day skiing, he did 10,000 vertical feet at Vail. That could make a difference in my life. What about other people? Michael, I hope you'll also show the... When you start writing articles about this, when you start sharing that experience with others, you get invited to do crazy stuff. I like to teach this. I got to teach adaptive ski biking to world travelers. I hope you have the scene of the, the my class. And there's world travelers there. And if you look closely at that photo, you can see in that 810 folks that those world travelers had just come back from places like Iraq and Afghanistan. And those are kids that didn't have a dad that was a 26-year-old ski patrolman. They were privates and sergeants that had never been on a mountain. And they'd come back from Iraq and Afghanistan without a limb. 
every single person in that picture is missing a limb. You know, your listeners have all seen pictures of um, ski lessons where the instructor comes down and the class comes down. And one of my favorite days in the world was when I got to ski down that mountain and watch these kids had never been in the mountain rip big turns, spray me with snow and say, wow, doc, this is the best day I've ever had. Now imagine that. These kids that came back from Iraq and Afghanistan had never been on a mountain on the best day of their life without parts you know, of it, their body. It, I'm sorry. You know, it occurs to me that because really the, the non-military community, and, and again, these, these yep. amputations, I, I, th- I think this, again, this term, the signature injury of Iraq and Iran has been, uh, I'm sorry, Iraq and Afghanistan has been traumatic brain injury. And next yep. to that, it's, it's probably amputation. the law. It's, it's been amputations, and I think that those of us in the civilian community have been so divorced from the military experience of the past decade and, decade. and I wonder, maybe there's something we can organize right now and think about to get people like me. I'm your age. I'm 53. I took up skiing later in life. I carve beautifully in my imagination. <laughs> And and really, you know, once I get into hard blues, I'm not looking so good. I would love to learn how to ride that ski bike down the mountain, and I'd love to do it side by side with somebody like you and people who have come back from Iraq and Afghanistan and experience it with them. And then suddenly, it's not the isolation anymore. It would be a great, great way to get people together, don't you think? Or maybe you've done it already. One of the lessons is for from this is that we can move through tragedy from from that survival first stage of survival that from the injury and that's where the ICU and the helicopter comes in that's the golden hour to healing where you find what helps you step through the difficulty what helps you make that step on a prosthesis the first day to really thriving when you can see that there's a benefit to you ultimately in this that. That day with those kids, that's something that I would never have without this experience, and my life is better that way. One of the things that we need to do is to help folks that are coming back from Iraq and Afghanistan, help folks from Boston to be able to meet and and learn from others that have faced these challenges. That's where groups like the Amputee Coalition, the national organization, has a database. When somebody from Boston says, hey, how do I ride a bike? There are people that have done that. There are people that have walked those steps that now run with prosthetic legs. My hope is that those folks can have the benefit of finding friends and family and other amputees that they can meet and see and understand that they're not alone. Because without those, I'm an N of one in my real life. But with other people and shared stories, we're stronger together, Michael. You know, I'm a parent, and, and, and all of us parents think, how can we create or instill resilience in our children? And uh, a study came out recently that showed there was a direct correlation between families who tell their family narrative as one that includes ups and downs. Yeah. And you know, I just wonder, just just hearing your story and putting them into the putting your story into the minds of children, having children ex- have those experiences, not just children without limbs, but all children to have that experience sure. on the mountain with you and see you do it. Uh, boy, that would be a resilience enhancing experience. Probably is for you too. 
Well, um, to see others succeed, it's not what you do with your hands. It's what you see other people go forward. I was fortunate in my life to actually see um, my parents make choices in their life that were conscious choices um, to change their lives. My dad had been in, uh, decided to take a midlife career change and uh, went back to school, graduate school, um, and became a dentist in the middle of my life. He included us in um, those times. And in some ways, those were hard times. There was less money, but there were family times where we learned to water ski together or uh, to be in the mountains together. Um, those were choices. My my grandfather died when he was 55 years old, and um, that means that we need to learn to live today. He had lived a full life, had traveled with my grandmother. He sang in a barbershop quartet. The times we had with my grandpa were real, um, and, and I value those times. And understand when that happens, it affects your father and it affects you. And so you look for the ways to enjoy life with challenge. Um, that ultimately some of the challenges can bring us to new places. <laughs> I'm fortunate that I, uh, I'm i doing things today that I don't think I could have done without the lessons and the view from uh, from this path. I, I wouldn't wish a limb loss on anyone, but I wish that people that face challenge, and that can be a, a divorce, a job change, a loss, um, uh, an amputation, that they can have a new view where they learn how this can ultimately enrich their life. I've got two more questions for you. So, sure. um, it, it, first of all, in terms of setting this example as parents, it sounds like your parents were they were willing to take on risks. They relished it. They were not irresponsible risks, but they clearly gave you a comfort level that risk is a part of life and you want to pursue your passion. Yes. You sound like such a positive person. It sounds like you were positive before the accident. You've been positive after. Is there anything that gets you down? Hi, <laughs> I, I. There's there are lessons here, Michael, about change. There were down times in this. There were dark nights. I don't want to minimize the loss that people, people that woke up that morning and ran a marathon and and finish the day with their bodies different. Um, there are dark times. Uh, there are hard times. There were times when I had someone hold my hand and cry with me um, in, in the darkest of the nights. But the, the thing that got me through was understanding that there are, that is to find something that's more important than that dark spot, that there's more important than things than the pain. Why take a step forward? You know, why get up? And it's hard to learn to walk on a prosthesis. You, you look back and you see that wheelchair over there, and you can say, you know, I can get almost anywhere I want in that wheelchair. Almost, <laughs> but but there were more important things. There were um, there were my patients. Um, there were the residents I was teaching. There was being back in the mountains, discovering that time with my dad again. Um, so. Yes, there are dark times, and our job is to be able to find, as a family doctor, it's to work with my patients to find what's more important than the, the pain in their life. As, as someone sitting next to someone in Boston that's recovering from Boston, it's discover what's more important than that pain that they're having right now. Their pain is real. Hold their hand, be with them, but also help them look forward, too. You're a family doctor. You're 53. Uh, have you started your own family? 
Um, I have. I don't have a family. I had a stepson uh, when I was married. Um, these days, uh, the world is keeping me. I'm. We, we talked about the gifts that you have in the world. One of the gifts I learned was to be able to, um, to, to find some gifts in this experience. One of the challenges that was unexpected that people will have in Boston is that they'll wake up and they can trust their prosthesis. They can trust an athlete that they're going to try to go forward. Um, they might not be expecting the need for bake sales. Um, <laughs> it, right. When I say bake sales, Michael, it turns out that uh, insurance companies have eliminated the prosthetic benefit in most insurance plans in the United States. And um, insurance, uh, that prosthetics are, are very expensive. That child that lost his legs there, that insurance plan most commonly offers either $1,000 per limb or a one limb per lifetime. Um, I was fortunate as a family doc to be able to to be able to afford the rest of that first leg. But if I was a fifth grade school teacher, if I was raising money at Boston, I don't know that I could have afforded that. So, how how much is a first rate a first rate prosthesis? Oh man, it depends on where the leg is, Michael. Amputated, you know, anywhere from eighteen to fourteen thousand dollars for a below knee prosthesis to a sports leg or a higher leg, a computer-assisted leg that can help you if your knee is gone to be able to not fall, to be able to have a more active life. Those, are, those make sense for our culture. Those make sense for our businesses. Those make sense for our personal lives. So I, I went to Colorado and helped change the law in Colorado to m- make insurance companies pay for prosthetics. Um, and we've gone nationally with the Amputee Coalition to... We now pass laws in 20 states to do that, but there's 30 states that are still out there, and some of those people from Boston are going to be challenged by that. It's uh, it's important federally that we make that effort so that people can return to their lives, return to their jobs, return to that active lifestyle that adds to themselves and to their families. Uh, so that's a new skill. Um, the same skill, by the way, is from the ski biker, is from working on tobacco prevention for kids. Um, so... And today, um, today I'm working teaching residents. I'm still in that office with uh, with those folks that walk in the the five year old patient that walks in and uh, bounces around my room that I got to help see the child I delivered going to going to college now, inviting me to their high school graduation, and that that fun part of being back in the office as a family doctor was what drew me back. Um, let me finish this with a joke, and the, and the joke will provoke a question, and I'm curious what your answer is. And this, this joke was told by a rabbi a, a long time ago, and I always remember it. It's about the importance of words and language and, uh, and not hurting other people's feelings. That was, the other, that was the underlying message. Here's the joke. There was a king in the olden days, and he was very sick, and the only thing that would cure him was the milk of a lioness. And the only way to get the milk of a lioness was to find a hunter who could capture the lioness alive and milk it and bring the milk back. So one hunter volunteers, and the king says, okay, if you succeed at this, there will be great financial rewards. But if you fail, off with your head. So the hunter goes out. He tracks the lioness for days. He's very fast. He sees the lioness. He chases it down tackles it, milks it, sets it free, and brings the milk back to the king. And as he's walking back to the palace, an argument erupts among this hunter's body parts, between the body parts. 
And the legs say, you know, we're the most important body part because we were fast enough to get you to catch the lioness. And the hands say, no, we're the most important body parts because we helped you milk the lioness. And the eyes say, well, you wouldn't have seen the lioness without us. We're the most (laughs) important body part. And the ears say, what are you talking about? It's us. We heard the directive from the king. We're the most important body parts. And then the mouth says, no, no, I'm the most important body part. And all the other body parts start laughing at the hunter's mouth. You have mouth. You had nothing to do with this. Anyway, the hunter gets back to the palace, and the king says, So, did you get me what I asked for? And the hunter says, Yes, sir, I got you the milk of a pig. And the hunter says, How dare you ridicule me? Off with your head. And the other body parts start saying, Mouth, what are you doing? You're going to get us killed. And Mouth says, What's the most important body part? (laughs) My question to you is, to you, what is the most important body part? Well, Michael, I think it's uh, it's not so much a part; it's the ability to to be part of the world, understand it, and uh, to interact with it, um, to be able to be present. Um, ultimately, for the folks in Boston, for my my <laughs> world, you're not defined by your feet. Um, you're not defined by your arms. Those are just parts. Um, we're defined by our humanity and our ability to reach out and share the stories that we have to see and interact with the world. Um, <laughs> and I, I have to say that it's not all we laughed at this. So there's some, there's some tears in this. Uh, there's also some, uh, hope in this and there's also some laughter in this, you know, um, ultimately, um, I can be as tall as I want to <laughs> ultimately, uh, uh, without legs. Uh, I don't worry when I get on an airplane, because there's always enough leg room. <laughs> That's what the overhead bin's for. Um, so I, I think that the most important thing is to be able to be part of the world, interact with it, and share it with others. Um, indirect answer, Michael, how'd that go? It's great. Dr. Jeff King, Chief of Family Medicine at Children's Hospital in Denver, uh, thank you so much for sharing your approach to life, uh, which will, I think, benefit all of us. Thank you. Thank you, Michael. By the way, you can find CNN Profiles on our website, cnn.com slash soundwaves, or download us from iTunes, or go to SoundCloud. And please, if you like what you hear, don't be shy. Share.